Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 2. The entirety of this chapter deals with the third of Zechariah's eight nighttime visions. There's a certain obvious progression here. The first vision in chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, was making the point that God is large and in charge. He is sovereign. He knows what is going on in the world. And in fact, he is directing global events to bring about the purposes he has ordained. And those purposes will work out in favor of his chosen people. He loves the covenant community. He has a special affection for her like a husband has a special affection for his bride. So even if global events do not initially appear to favor God's people, you can trust that they will accomplish all the good that God has ordained for his glory and our everlasting good. That's the message of the first oracle. God is in charge of the world and he loves his covenant community Hallelujah. In the second vision, recorded in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, the basic message is that God has a plan to punish and pay back every global power that has opposed and terrorized his chosen people. God may use a foreign power to chastise his people, but he holds them to strict account. And if they exceed their commission in the slightest way, he will judge them and cast them down. Now, here again, in this third vision, that idea is further developed. In this vision, we learn that God has big plans for Israel, bigger perhaps than they dare to hope or imagine. And he is prepared to see to their defense. They may outgrow their walls, but no matter, God will be a flame of fire in their midst. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. All right, as mentioned, the main themes of this third nighttime vision are expansion and protection. The imagery is fairly straightforward. A man is seen with a measuring line in his hand. A measuring line is a piece of rope cut to a standard length. It is used in construction projects. So the question being asked here is, how big? How big is the city and how expansive will this rebuilding program be? And the answer is way bigger than you think. One angel says to the other angel, go tell that young man not to bother with measuring for walls. The walls are going to become irrelevant. The city is going to expand the project is going to spill out beyond the confines of this one narrow region because of the multitude of people that will be included in it. So this is first and foremost a vision of expansion. Joyce Baldwin says here, Jerusalem will be as villages without walls. 
open to all who wish to enter, free from dividing walls and national barriers, knowing no limits on the size of its population, closed quote. Now, of course, we can't help but wonder when this will happen, because even a generation later in Nehemiah's time, people had to be compelled to move into the city. Jerusalem wasn't overflowing. It wasn't bursting at the seams or overflowing its banks. So when will this vision of growth and expansion come to pass? Baldwin goes on to say, The prophecy was nearer to fulfillment in the time of Jesus, when at festival times the city overflowed with pilgrims from all parts of the known world. More significant is the expansion of the church to all parts of the world. But even so, there is need to compel people to come in, in brackets Luke 14, 23, for still there is room, closed quote. All right, so here's an example of how an apocalyptic vision often has points of contact with the immediate historical situation, but stretches off into a distant and even ultimate future. The vision is saying, get started on this project. It's, it's like you're digging a well. It seems to you just like a hole in the ground, but something is going to come out of your efforts that will spread to all the world and bring in growth and change and prosperity beyond your wildest imaginations. This is ultimately looking forward to the coming of Christ and the ingathering of the Gentiles, the covenant community, which had been ground down to a small remnant, shaking in their boots, dreaming of a wall to protect them from their enemies, is going to grow and expand beyond what any single city could hope to contain. It is going to be big and it is going to be sacred. The Lord will be in their midst. He will be their guardian and their glory. That's the protection part of this imagery. Jesus is going to be very committed to the safety and well-being of the church. Now, some are going to object here and say, well, wait a second, why are you talking about the church? This is a prophecy about Jerusalem. Well, yes, and more than yes. It, it is about Jerusalem immediately, but it is also about more than Jerusalem. Thomas McComiskey says here, as Jerusalem transits the Testaments, it becomes a bold metaphor for the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual community of those who have found freedom in God's grace, closed quote. Now, that isn't just McComiskey's opinion. That seems to be the understanding of the New Testament apostles as well. There are several prophecies about expansion in the Old Testament that are interpreted in the New Testament as ultimately referring to the ingathering of the Gentiles. So Isaiah 54, 1-3, for example, says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and people the desolate cities. Quote. So, even though Israel will be ground down by defeat and exile, the prophet tells them to look forward to a glorious future that will be characterized by massive expansion and extension. The Apostle Paul picks that up in Galatians 4.27, saying, Rejoice, O barren one. You can hear the language there. He's painting a new promise in colors lifted right off an Old Testament prophecy. 
Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. He says that in reference to the Jerusalem that is above, who is our mother, that is to say, the universal church. R. Alan Cole comments on this passage in Galatians, saying, This heavenly Jerusalem is our mother. To be her children is to have already entered this eschatological age of fulfillment of all of God's promises, and this the Christian has already done through trust in God's Messiah. Close quote. So for Paul, this prophecy about expansion for Israel found ultimate fulfillment in the grafting in of Gentiles and nations. Now, if you're a bit of a history buff, you might notice that actually that passage was the same one used to launch the modern missionary movement. William Carey cited that passage in Isaiah, lengthen your cord, strengthen your stakes, as a call to people to engage the great missionary enterprise of bringing in the far-flung Gentiles into the church. So, So these prophecies of expansion in the Old Testament have been understood by the apostles, by Christians historically, as referring ultimately, ultimately, to the ingathering of the Gentiles. That's why walls are going to be irrelevant. The covenant community isn't going to be a city surrounded by nations in the future. It is going to be a community of people inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. So, we're starting something small here with this rebuilding project that is going to spread out from the city and fill the entire world. That's the message here in this oracle. Praise the Lord. All right, let's jump into the next part of the vision. Here in verses 6 to 13, we have a poetic section that seems to parallel and apply, as it were, the import of the message we've just been discussing. The text, starting in verse 6, says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. All right, in order for us to make sense of this application portion of the vision, we need to do a little bit of translation work. The ESV has up, up at the start of verse 6. The Hebrew word is hoy and is sometimes translated as woe to introduce a lament. You get the sense that, that something bad is being announced that requires movement or response of some kind. So the NIV has it as, come, Zion, escape, you who live in daughter Babylon. Mark Boda, in his commentary for the new international series, has it as, attention, Zion. Now, however you prefer to translate that, the idea here is that something bad is going to happen to Babylon, and therefore God's people need to be aware of that and conduct themselves appropriately. 
The suggestion here is that they need to flee from Babylon and join the community of exiles in Jerusalem. That's the immediate literal meaning. But Mick Comiskey sees a general pattern here that I think we need to be aware of as well. He says, this call is to all people in every age to flee from the world, to find a home with the myriads and thousands of thousands who will one day find community before God's throne, closed quote. It is a dangerous thing to make yourself at home in a world that is under God's impending judgment. You need to leave the city of destruction behind, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, and make your way towards the celestial city. That's the idea being expressed here. Verse 8 is a little bit complicated as well. The ESV has that as, For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's where the ESV has landed, but every commentary that you consult will tell you that this is one of the most, if not the most, disputed verses in the entire book. There are a host of issues that have to be decided here. Is the verse saying that Zechariah was sent to the nations, or that God's glory was sent to the nations, or that the angel of the Lord was sent to the nations in pursuit of the glory of God? What exactly is being said here? Most commentators will walk you through the various options, but at the end of the day, what you need to decide is who the me is in the first half of verse 8. So when it says, after his glory sent me, who's that referring to? Zechariah? Well, that could be, grammatically. But there's no mention of Zechariah being anywhere other than in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions throughout the entirety of his ministry. So it would seem odd to refer to a missionary trip to the nations that he says nothing further about in his writings. The second option is to understand the me there as referring to God himself. In that case, God is saying, in essence, In pursuit of my glory, I went to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. And Zechariah switches to his eye as he jumps back in again as the narrator. That reads a bit awkwardly, but it is grammatically possible, and it makes the best sense given the wider context, and it tends to be the option that most translators and commentators finally land on. But it certainly doesn't jump out to us that way when we read it in English as casual readers. So just to clarify here, our best guess is that in verse 8, Zechariah is recording God as saying, that in pursuit of his own glory, God visited the nations who harassed and abused Israel. He did this because the people of Israel are the apple of his eye. They're precious to him. And what you do to them, in some sense, is what you do to him. Now, of course, that fits very well with what we see in the New Testament. When Saul is persecuting the church, Jesus goes to Saul and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.4. Notice that he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Rather, he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying that what you do to the church, what you do to the covenant community is what you do to me. We see that as well, of course, in the story of the sheep and the goats, just phrased more positively. Jesus gives us the punchline of that story when he says in Matthew 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So that is Jesus identifying with his disciples in exactly the same way as God identifies with the covenant community in Zechariah 2, verse 8. The message then would be that God is going to visit judgment upon the nations that oppressed and harassed his people. They shall become plunder for those who serve them. Which, of course, reminds us of the Exodus story, doesn't it? God knows how to pay back. God knows how to even the scales. 
When you see that happen, Zechariah says, then you will know that God is truly speaking through me. He says that in verse 9. Now, just stop and think about that. This is, this is one of those instances where an understanding of the basic chronology here is really helpful. All of these visions, the night uh, visions, the eight of them, they all take place on one night, February 15th, 519 B.C. So go back, just flip back in your Bible to Ezra 5, verses 1 to 2. There we're told that Haggai and Zechariah were prophesying together in that time period, in that window, when the building of the temple had been stalled for almost 20 years because of local opposition, bureaucratic confusion, and just, just chaos in the wider empire. But Haggai and Zechariah offer encouragement, this kind of encouragement, fiery sermons from the old prophet Haggai, and then these inspirational dreams and, and visions from the younger prophet Zechariah. But they didn't just make this stuff up. Zechariah says, test me on this and see. If you think I'm just pulling this stuff out of the air, just wait and see. Wait until you see God ordaining reparations from those who have trampled and abused you. Then you'll know that God has sent me. All right. Well, I'm guessing that at first no one was taking Zechariah all that seriously, right? I mean, as if, as if these great and powerful nations are going to send reparations. That's never going to happen. Now flip forward in your Bible to Zechariah 6 verse 1, and you'll see that it does happen. That verse says that King Darius made a decree that a search should be made to verify the rights of the Jews to rebuild the temple. After some confusion and delay, just such a decree was found. So Darius wrote a letter back to the regional governor, and this is what he said. This is Zechariah 6 verses 6 to 12. He says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river. Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Closed quote. Well, wouldn't you know it? Shortly after Zechariah shares this vision that he had and says, test me now on this. When reparations flow from the land of our oppressors into our treasury here, you will know that God has been speaking through me. And then sure enough, a caravan arrives a little while later with a letter and a massive infusion of cash from Babylonia. Just like the vision said, the house will be built with money taken from the Persian treasury. Now, if the people weren't sure about Zechariah before... They have no doubts about his ministry now. The temple will be built. Reparations will flow. And if that can happen, then anything can happen. Even the nations can come and be grafted into the house and people of the Lord. He says that here in verse 11. 
But the people of Israel, the people of Judah, will still be special to the Lord. In verse 12, he says, And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Just like many a mother has had to explain to her firstborn child, God is saying here that just because we're bringing in new children doesn't mean that he loves his firstborn any less. God's heart is big, and his love knows no limits or bounds. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's verse 13. The whole world is going to see this work. And they will stand silent before the Lord, and they will be dumbfounded by the scale and grandeur of his plans and providence. There is a world of blessing preparing to be released out of this very humble beginning in the city of Jerusalem, among the ruins of the temple, for all those who have faith to see it. And many people did see it. Thomas McComiskey says here, Zechariah's words would have encouraged them to work on toward a distant goal, knowing that the future held the bright prospect of Yahweh dwelling in a kingdom of vast population and spiritual prosperity. Quote. And so they did. The book of Ezra tells us that they did. In Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, it says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 